Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I used to cycle to work when the weather was good, but when it was raining or I felt tired, I took the bus. Sometimes, not wishing to admit my laziness, I told myself that it looked like rain, or I reinterpreted what the weather forecast said and said that it could rain, and then I got the bus. I like a window seat. This may go back to my childhood and going on the bus with my brother. I loved to sit by the window so I could look out, but it was also a bit risky because my brother might get off the bus without telling me and I would be abandoned. Today, I'm not afraid of being abandoned and I enjoy bus journeys, but only if I can sit by the window. The first time I went on the bus alone, I got on the wrong bus. I was seven or eight and my mother had given me bus fare and the price of a haircut. I waited for the bus with the brash confidence of a seasoned traveller. And when the bus came, I got on without looking at the bus number. I sat at the window, confident that I knew where I was going, and enjoying the sense of independence of being on my own. Confident, that is, until the bus turned away from Dunleary, my destination, and headed for Cabinteely. Terrified, I stood up, shaking. I told the bus conductor, and he calmed me immediately. I could stay on the bus till Fox Rock, he said, then get the 46A to Dunleary. He took my ticket, scribbled on it with a pencil, and told me to give it to the conductor on the 46A. What he wrote, I have no idea, but it worked. As you can imagine, I have been careful about checking bus numbers ever since. I was a late reader, but when I began to read, I read everything, but not always correctly. The sign on the bus said, please do not distract the driver. Maybe I had a lazy eye and missed the A in the middle of distract, but I read it as, please do not district the driver. What could that possibly mean? On the basis of my limited knowledge of the world and of the English language, I decided that to district was a verb meaning to give directions. It seemed the only logical possibility. So passengers were not to give directions to the driver. Why not? Again, on the basis of my limited knowledge of the world and the workings of Chorus Humper Aaron, I concluded that the bus driver should know the way and it was his own fault if he got lost and nobody should help him. But that's just silly. Bus drivers are human and sometimes make mistakes. When the bus takes a wrong turn, Should we all sit quiet and revel in the fact that the bus driver will be in serious trouble when he gets back to the garage? And sit quiet while the bus takes us away from our work or school? Not at all. It happened a few years ago that the driver of the bus I was on took a wrong turning and everybody told him. He cursed and apologised and cursed again. Then he reversed and found the right road and everybody was happy. Children read on buses sometimes more readily than they do in the classroom. And if an adult is approachable enough and helpful enough, the children will read and understand whatever they can find, directions to passengers, ads and notices about destinations. But even without help, children work things out. 
Maria Montessori wrote about a child who got off a London tram and told the adult they were with that if every passenger on the tram that day had spat, the total fine would have been £34. I'm not surprised by the child's spontaneous reading and calculations because children will always surprise us with what they are capable of doing unbidden. No, what surprised me was that there was a fine of more than a few shillings on London trams as far back as the 1920s. But then, perhaps the child's ability to multiply was not as good as his ability to read. bus was late and forced us all to congregate Twenty-seven strangers made to stand and wait The time went by, the sun went down I can't get through to Natasha. I tried both her mobile and business phone, but she's not answering. Very unusual. If ever there was a person contactable at all hours, it's Natasha. But each time I dial, a female voice tells me in Russian that I've the wrong number. I don't think so. But obviously, it's not so easy to get through to Odessa these days. I met her by chance in 2006 when I was writing about everyday life in post-Soviet Ukraine. The Iron Curtain's improbable embrace of capitalism had brought widespread insecurity a people grasping in vain for all the old certainties. Instead, the vagaries of the open market brought the unexpected, one facet of which was a proliferation of agencies in Odessa touting potential brides from Ukraine. In a town renowned for the beauty of its women, I first wondered if this could possibly be a front for prostitution. But after a coffee with Natasha on Derbaskovskaya Street... I saw it all a little differently. Her own story was a case in point. Growing up in the Soviet Union, she completed her doctorate in oceanography, after two decades in academia, finally landing a cherished full-time position as professor in Moscow. But the collapse of socialism took educational funding with it, and her life plan went down the drain. Nobody cares about fish or oceans anymore, she said with a shrug. Her marriage founded around the same time, so in the early 1990s she moved with her son to Odessa, scraping by on odd jobs and $10 a month as a car park attendant. She acquired an old computer for her son, but Natasha's proficiency with English meant neighbours, especially younger women, would ask her for help, usually to correspond with suitors abroad. By the time the internet changed the world, she was able to set up her own agency, which she named Adam and Eva. Now she operates a different company, Ukraine Accommodation. When I met her, she had 220 young women on her books. She took a personal interest in her girls. All of them were looking for relationships that might lead to marriage. I don't know if she drew from her own experience, but Natasha was sympathetic to the girl's situation, aware that their dilemma somehow afforded her a reasonable livelihood. And the figures backed her up. 
women outnumbered men in Ukraine at that time by five to four. And the post-Soviet era saw widespread drug abuse and alcoholism, particularly among men. Unfortunately, so many men who are still alive could hardly be called men anymore, she suggested. They are lost for society and for women as potential husbands. Each person, each woman has a right to have a family. If she can't meet someone here in Ukraine and she wants to have a family, she has a right to go to another country. Although smaller than other agencies, Natasha was less madam than godmother to her girls. She preferred to keep it manageable and carefully vetted any man who would pay a year's membership to her website. One might be introduced to a girl through this site as long as the girl was agreeable. And maybe down the road they might end up meeting face to face in Odessa. But only one in ten got that far. Yet to me it seemed so out of kilter, given that typically one side came from adversity and lack of opportunity, while the other was usually older, wealthier and not necessarily wiser. It's an interesting question, replied Natasha. Maybe in the beginning the man thinks he's the boss because she comes from a poor country. But the Ukrainian woman doesn't see it that way. I was thinking of the day I met her when Odessa recently flashed up on our TV screens. How strange to see local defence units placing improvised barricades across its cobbled streets. Curfew emptying the town of life after dark. Looming over it all, the city's magnificent opera house rebuilt in 1887 after being destroyed by fire. How ironic that the opera house featured in Eisenstein's propaganda masterpiece Battleship Potemkin, the highlight of which was the massacre of unarmed civilians by Tsarist forces on the steps of Odessa. I stood on those same steps after meeting Natasha, marvelling at what has become one of the most famous locations in world cinema. And facing out across the Black Sea, how could anyone have predicted that 16 years later the people of Odessa would be filling sandbags to prepare for an invasion, sorry, military manoeuvres, by the Red Army? The destruction of Mariupol and extensive damage to Mikhailayev down the road left me wondering about Odessa's fate, about the business Natasha has spent 24 years building up. And among the human tide, thousands of Ukraine's prospective brides now having to flee for their lives rather than choosing to try their luck with a future elsewhere. The city's docklands took some heavy hits last week, but the main part of town is relatively unscathed, at least to date. The thought of it recalled a memory of Natasha walking to her office after we met. Two pet cats stretched lazily across her desk, watching her return to work. I never ever thought I'd be doing this, she remarked, logging on once more. But you must accept that things change and find a way to live in new conditions. The last two months are not the new conditions she had in mind. But who, if anyone, can say they saw it coming? I try calling again. Wrong number, says the Russian operator. I'm not so sure. More a faulty connection to a proven and resilient survivor. I imagine that soon enough calls to Natasha, yet unanswered, will be picked up.
Nancy Wise Powers stepped onto the train at Kingsbridge. It was the afternoon of Ash Wednesday in 1916, and earlier that day, Bulmer Hobson had asked her to convey an important message to Terence McSweeney in Cork. Though a member of the executive of Cumann this was Nancy's first dispatch, and she was intent on a faultless delivery. Anyone in touch with the Irish volunteers knew that matters to do with the rising were heading to a climax, and Nancy felt proud to be actively involved. Patriotism was in her blood. Her mother, Jenny, suffragist, friend of Parnell and vice president of Sinn Féin, was a formidable organiser of Inina Heron and Common Naman. Her father, John Weispower, co-founder of the GAA and member of the IRB, was so well known in Dublin Republican circles that Joyce cast him as John Wise Nolan in the Cyclops episode of Ulysses. The family's restaurant at 21 Henry Street was a key meeting place for radicals of every hue. It was there that the proclamation was drafted. Years later, in her testimony to the Bureau of Military History, Nancy described how she found a quiet carriage and placed her bag containing the all-important foolscap envelope between herself and the window. However, at Limerick Junction the train became crowded and she had to put the bag overhead. Immersed in her book, she was barely aware of those around her. Passengers got off at Emily, Kilmallock, Knocklong and Buttevent, and at Mallow she again had the carriage to herself. It occurred to her then that her bag might be searched when she got to Cork, and so she decided to hide the envelope within the lining of her coat. But as soon as she grasped the bag, she realised that it wasn't hers. Someone had taken her bag and left their own behind. In a frenzied panic and with the train about to restart, she jumped off and raced along the platform in search of the station master. He telephoned back to the stations, but nothing had been handed in. Seeing her distress, a crowd soon enfolded her, offering bams of encouragement like, "'Tis only a bag,' and nobody died, which merely added to her angst. Rifling through the bag in hand, the stationmaster found reference to a Father Hayes, and a man piped up that Father Hayes of hospital had got off at Knocklong. With no hope of transport to the town of hospital at that hour of the evening, Nancy's only option was to wait for the last train to Cork and to arrive at the McSweeney's without the all-important dispatch. Her only consolation was that a priest was unlikely to go to the police. But already she could see her name aligned in history with those who, through loose lips or carelessness, had scuppered other rebellious plots. The minutes passed like hours. For security reasons, Terence McSweeney was not staying at home. So Nancy solemnly recounted her tale to his sister. Though sympathetic, Mary McSweeney insisted that she return next day and retrieve the bag. From a sleepless night, Nancy rose to a soft grey Thursday morning and caught the first Dublin train. At Knocklong, she hired the only available car, an open Ford. For Nancy, 
born and reared in the city, the countryside was a soggy sort of place. And progress was slow as the car jerked in and out of cavities on the pocked road, squirting up sprays of a brown sulok. So she arrived in hospital, speckled in mud. Then, to add to her troubles, the priest's door was opened by a woman who, Nancy soon discovered, had a significant stammer. Excruciatingly slowly, with every second vital if she was to catch the cork train and keep her appointment with Thurns McSweeney, Nancy finally established that Father Hayes had gone to the station to hand in the bag. Driving back the mucky road, she met the returning priest, who assured her that her bag was indeed at the station, but that she couldn't possibly make the cork train. As she hurried off, Father Hayes called after her. Does that bag belong to the Bishop of Cork? But she had no time to answer. Somehow Nancy did, with barely a moment to spare, catch the departing train. Bag reclaimed and envelope intact, she hurled herself onto the last carriage and this time sat on top of the bag all the way to Cork. That evening, diners in Thompson's Café were no doubt startled by the winded, dishevelled state of the young woman who joined the McSweeney's for tea. While they were eating, Terence McSweeney discreetly tore open the envelope, revealing a number of smaller envelopes within. Nancy noticed that one was addressed to the Bishop of Cork and wondered at Father Hayes's question. Afterwards, she slipped into the church of Saints Peter and Paul to say a grateful prayer. Leaden with tiredness, she sank in front of the altar of repose, the altar in preparation for an Easter passion, which gave death a sacred and sacrificial meaning and softened it through the miracle of the rising. Enver Hodja built one in Tirana in 1953. All the communist-era Eastern European countries had at least one. But Dublin still doesn't have a dedicated grand opera house. Under communism, the Albanian dictator Enver Hodja regarded modern artistic works and music to be decadently bourgeois and promoted only realist and classical arts. Opera came under his version of the classical arts. It wasn't much different in the USSR. The communists could control the narrative when putting on La Traviata, The Barber of Seville or Tosca, all of which were staged at one time or another in the Tirana Opera House. 
A very popular one was a homegrown opera called Mirka or Maria, composed by Pranka Yakova with a libretto in Albanian by Lazar Siliki. The Opera House and Company continues on in Tirana and has produced a number of notable tenors and sopranos who perform on the international stage. While opera was regarded as ideal cultural fare for the proletariat in communist society, in working-class Ireland, opera, as I remember it in the 50s and 60s, was generally regarded as a thing only for the decadent bourgeoisie. We preferred the Royal Show Band, the Huckle Book, Gene Pitney, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, whose members were working-class heroes, but in Tirana, you could end up in prison if you were found listening to She Loves You, Yeah, 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 thereby joining the political prisoners who built many of the red-brick apartment buildings in Tirana. While that oppressive switch to communist states in the post-Second World War era was going on, here in Ireland it was an era of mass emigration, and we were exporting our workforce to rebuild Britain. Ours was still a confessional state. By contrast, in 1967, Hodge declared Albania to be the world's first atheist state. In those times, amongst our Western mix of film favourites, there were also the British comedies like the Carry On films and also the slapstick comedies of Norman Wisdom. Amazingly, Mr Pitkin, Wisdom's character, had one of his biggest fan bases outside of the UK in Albania under communism. Norman Wisdom's slapstick comedy display the downtrodden working classes getting the upper hand on the capitalist running dog bosses personified by Mr Grimsdale. For Hodge, a parable of the class war. After the fall of communism, Wisdom visited Albania in 1995 and was mobbed by his many fans from the communist era, including the then-president Sali Berisha. He was made an honorary citizen of Tirana. The Albanian communist state was paranoid. When I went there soon after the fall of communism, one of the things I noticed was the number of concrete bunkers at road junctions, on beaches, in parks. Hodja had his own personal command and control bunker dug into the side of the mountain Daiti that dominates Tirana. He had good reason to be paranoid. The Allies were very familiar with Albania, having provided weapons, supplies and technical on-the-ground support during the Second World War to the Albanian guerrillas opposing the Axis powers through the Special Operations Executive. They supported both the communist and nationalist guerrillas who immediately fought each other at the end of the war. The communists under Hodge won. Between 1949 and 51 the Allies decided to pick communist Albania as a suitable location for a counter-revolution against the communism that had taken hold in the Balkans and Eastern Europe. They organised an infiltration of small groups of expatriate anti-communist Albanians. The idea was to get them to encourage an anti-communist uprising. The big problem with the subversion plan was that the British double agent Kim Philby was passing the dates, times and locations of the initial arrivals to the Russians with whom Hodge was allied at that time. 
As a result, the insurgents had a welcoming party and were either summarily shot or imprisoned. The Albanians used the Morse code radio set of one of the initial infiltrator agents and posing as one of them, encouraged more expatriate insurgents to come and ultimately be shot or imprisoned until the Allies eventually realised what was happening to the agents. Today, Tirana is a vibrant city and tourist destination and some enterprising locals have turned some of the remaining bunkers into tourist attractions and art installations. If you get a chance to visit Ember's nuclear-proof bunkered war rooms built into Dighty Mountain, you will find a full-sized underground movie theatre carved out of the rock, where the cadres could watch Norman Wisdom as Pitkin, outwitting capitalism by his signature way of tripping himself up. Or indeed, go and see an opera in the newly refurbished Opera and Ballet Theatre that reopened recently after five years of restoration work. The gallery opening last autumn featured Placido Domingo and the Albanian soprano Ermanella Yahoo. The proletariat would surely have approved. Don't laugh at me Cause I'm a fool I know it's true Yes, I'm a fool No one seems to care Last month on the 6th of March, 10 days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I went to a concert in aid of Ukraine in the Berlin State Opera House. It was conducted by Daniel Barenboim, and afterwards I wrote this poem. It's entitled Eroica. Many of us are crowded into the Berlin Opera House this Sunday morning. Not one of the red velvet seats is empty. We've come to this three-tiered golden hall for the consolation of music. Our hearts are heavy with the news of war. It is back on all our screens, in all our minds, detailed as a medieval canvas, painted in the bleak colors of soot, blood and rust. We've come from all parts of the city whose streets and houses could tell us about it, if they could speak. Bombs, alarms, the park in flames, and thousands dying among the rubble, or running for their lives, backlit by fires. We've come to listen to Beethoven's Eroica in the hope that the music, the instruments, the clarinets or violins will reassure us. The old conductor is in pain, weighed down with his task. He can hardly lift the button. Sometimes he directs the musicians with his eyes only. We move closer together. We sit in a circle of golden light, safe and fearful. We are no heroes, but somewhere not far from us, heroes are made. A poet once said, 
pity the country that needs heroes, and we do with all our hearts. How can music drown out the uproar of cannons? And yet it does again and again. The violence tremble in despair. The oboe sings. The sweetness of the cello solo lifts us up. All of us as we sit there. The older man next to me with his walking stick. The woman in front who wept throughout the funeral march. And the first violinist with her delicate face who is working the bow at breakneck speed. The Humming Top Mother knelt by my crib and prayed, and I was forgiven the sins of the day. She blew out the flame, left me, and I was not scared of demon dreams or the dark. Crossing my arms over my breast, I remembered the spinning top left downstairs, how its pictures of horses and parrots and caravans blurred into yellows and reds. I slept, the spinning globe in my mind and all the creatures. Though I knew how beautiful the world is, was aware that both child and adult weep sometimes. And though I saw how the white-fronted geese labour through the ice-green twilight, and watched how the robin comes brazen to the garden seat, no one had given me the words. And because I sensed that the dream was me and not me, I cried too, I laughed and made signs, knowing already how the great world turns and spins, the colours fuse and the humming goes on and on. On this morning's programme we heard On the Buses by Michael O'Connor, then, The Steps of Odessa by Frank Shouldis. That was followed by The Lost Dispatch by Lord Mackey. Then we had A Night at the Opera and Norman Wisdom in Albania by Frank Kavanagh. That was followed by Eroica, a poem by Ava Burke. And then finally, And the Hummingbird Top, a poem by John F. Dean. Music this morning. The first piece was 27 Strangers by Villagers. That was then followed by Suave Sia Il Vento by Mozart, sung by Lucia Pop, Tom Krauss and Brigitte Fassbender with the Vienna Hayden Orchestra, conducted by Istvan Curtis. Then The Frost Is All Over by David Power. That was then followed by Don't Laugh at Me Cause I'm a Fool by Norman Wisdom. And the final piece this morning was the opening movement of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, played by the Staatskapelle Berlin, conducted by Daniel Barenboom. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Vinci. You can find more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie slash culture.
You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.